Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Roush. And I'm Jeremy. This is a weekly podcast where we deep dive into all of the bizarre stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. Are you so beautiful. <laughs> so weird. Are you ready for this week's presidential trivia quiz? Absolutely. Hit me. Which president was attacked by a rabbit while fishing alone in a rowboat? Quoted in his press secretary's autobiography, they wrote, The animal was clearly in distress, or perhaps berserk. The president confessed to having had limited experience with enraged rabbits. <laughs> he was unable to reach a definite conclusion about its state of mind. What was obvious, however, was that this large, wet animal making strange hissing noises and gnashing its teeth was intent upon climbing into the presidential boat. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. The answer will be at the end of this episode. Yes. Stay tuned. Alright, I've got a, I think a really good topic that you're going to enjoy. Usually do. Usually Usually. do. I think you're 17 of 18 so far. I think this is, (laughs) I think this is episode 12. 20. Oh. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay, so, so there's you're still two, pretty there's good. two that you completely like. <laughs> may or may not remember. Yeah. <laughs> by choice or not by choice. Yeah. All right, let's get into it. The Secret Service was created on July 5th, 1865. Ooh. The legislation creating the agency was actually sitting on President Abraham Lincoln's desk waiting to be signed the night he was assassinated. Wow. Yeah. Not that creating the agency before he was shot on April 15, 1865 would have helped him much. Right. The Secret Service was actually created by the Department of Treasury as a federal law enforcement agency focused on investigating counterfeit money, bank robberies, and illegal gambling. Nice. So, yeah, they weren't actually bodyguards for the president at the time that they were created. The first time that the Secret Service actually served as presidential bodyguards was in 1894 for President Grover Cleveland. So almost 30 years later. Yep. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Because nowadays, people only know the Secret Service as, as... the people who protect the president. Right. I mean, I guess there's still... I knew that they also investigated crimes against the Department of the Treasury. Right. But yeah, that's that's all I knew them as, yeah. as bodyguards I mean, for the president. Yeah, yeah. But apparently back before then, before they were used as bodyguards, mm-hmm. uh, the presidents would just hire out cops to mm. protect them wherever they were. Mm-hmm. And they still do. Right. But he now just has a mobile core group. Right. Whose sole purpose is... Yeah, that's their job, and they know him more personally, and there are certain guards, you know, assigned to each... Protecting Donald... Family member, and... Donald, what do you think his his code name is? I don't even know. It's probably something awful. (laughs) Well, it's probably not. Well, no, it's probably something, like, super... Hyper-masculine, I feel like. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Though I don't even remember what Obama's was. I don't either. So, I would like to know. I uh, guess we'll know. Hey, 
Well, let me write this down and I will follow up next week. Alright, sounds good. Big Jim Canale was a crime boss that led a small group of counterfeiters out of Chicago. Canal who? Canale. His last name is Canale. Are you sure it doesn't say Canale? No, I'm sure. <laughs> I think he was Irish. Okay. Not right. Italian. Well, I mean, we all know your, your uh, he's, grasp of He's Irish. <laughs> I know. I can at least say Irish names. <laughs> okay. All right. Going to give it to you. Yeah. Canale. Canale. But we'll just call him Big Jim. Just, just in case. <laughs> okay. Big Jim had been arrested for attempting to use a counterfeit $50 bill, and he served five years at the Illinois State Penitentiary. After that, he refused to touch counterfeit money himself, so instead he became the middleman for counterfeit creators and the shovers that would put the fake money into circulation. Ben Boyd was Big Jim's favorite counterfeit engraver. Apparently, Boyd's $5 plates were so close to perfect that over 300,000 $5 bills were printed from it and used without anyone noticing until the United States Treasury recalled all $5 bills. So they knew that counterfeit $5 bills were being put into circulation. That's $1.5 million. Yeah, that's how much money this guy was putting into circulation. And nobody, like, so obviously... But they knew of. So, yeah, so obviously they knew that somebody was doing this, yeah. but they just couldn't figure out who who it was. Mm-hmm. So instead, they just recalled... Big Jim. Yeah. So, well, this was Ben Boyd that was the engraver. Oh. So finally, they just recalled all $5 bills, and that's how they were able to catch Ben Boyd, because he was still putting them out. Yeah. So in 1875, Ben Boyd was arrested for counterfeiting and sentenced to 10 years in the Illinois State Penitentiary. This left Big Jim without any counterfeit money to sell to the gangs. Big Jim couldn't do business without Boyd, so Big Jim concocted a plan to get him out. He would steal Abraham Lincoln's body and hold it as ransom until Boyd was released along with a large sum of cash. <laughs> oh my gosh. See, to this, like, when I read that sentence, I think of uh, this as the plot to National Treasure 3. <laughs> right. We will steal Abraham Lincoln's I w- body. <laughs> I was thinking Weekend at Bernie's, but... <laughs> But also National Treasure this, 3. Yeah, so yeah. National Treasure 3 is actually, like, back in the 1800s, Nicholas Cage, Cage is Big time. Jim <laughs> it's, yeah, stealing it, Abraham Lincoln's body. It's Nicholas Cage as his great-great-grandfather. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you did see that a National Treasure 3 was coming out, though, right? No. Yes. Really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's amazing. So, hopefully... For my birthday, I will be having Nickelback tickets and tickets to opening night of National Treasure well, 3. I think they're, like, in pre-production for National Treasure 3. Like, it's not coming out anytime soon. So you're saying I'm getting an original signed script? <laughs> yeah. And there's also, I saw that there's also a Nicolas, move, Nicolas Cage movie coming out where about Nicolas Cage, where Nicolas Cage plays himself. In a movie about himself. Nice. So it's Nicolas Cage playing Nicolas Cage in a movie about Nicolas Cage. That's the most Nicolas Cage movie there it is. It is the most Nicolas Cage movie there is. The most Nicolas Cage thing to do. <laughs> okay, back to the story. In 1876, Big Jim rounded up some of his lackeys at a bar owned by Ben Sheridan in Lincoln, Illinois. He told his gang members about his plan to take Lincoln's body from its tomb in Springfield 
then hide it in a brick beer cave just south of Lincoln until Boyd was released from prison. Ben Sheridan and four other gang members left for Springfield two weeks before they planned on stealing Lincoln's body on July 3rd. While they were waiting for July 3rd to come, they spent their time in Springfield visiting several of the brothels in town. At one of these brothels, Ben Sheridan got super drunk and told one of the brothel hostesses that he was going to steal old Lincoln's bones, collect the ransom, and then come spend all that money at the brothel. Nice. He was like, you know what I'm going to do? Gonna steal Lincoln's body, and then I'm gonna get the money, and then gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy all buy all of the ladies. I'm gonna go get some bones for some bones to do some boning. Ah, <laughs> and then he made that noise. So the hostess was like, "Okay, this that's, is weird." Yeah, yeah. So she went. Something's up. Yeah. So she went and told the sheriff. So when Sheridan found out the next morning that he had told everybody about the group's plan. The plot was called off because mm. they found out that the sheriff knew. So like, okay, we can't do it anymore. Yeah, all right. So Big Jim was still keen on the plan to steal Lincoln's body, though. So he decided to try it again, but with different guys. Big Jim recruited a 27-year-old bar owner named Terrence Mullen and a counterfeit shover named Jack Hughes. The new plan was that Big Jim, Mullen, and Hughes would meet in Springfield, steal Lincoln's body put it on a horse-drawn wagon, and drive it 200 miles to the sand dunes on their southern tip of Lake Michigan, just southeast of Chicago. Hmm. They would bury Lincoln's body in the sand dunes and mark the spot by using permanent landmarks to triangulate the spot. The body would stay in the sand dunes until Boyd was released. They would also leave a torn piece of a rare newspaper inside of Lincoln's tomb and keep the rest of the paper inside a bust of Lincoln at Mullen's bar. That way they could prove that they were the body snatchers when it was time to collect the ransom money, which they decided should be $200,000, which would be about $4.9 million today. Wow. So, huge ransom. Yeah. Which to that, I'm like, you guys, it's like bones. Yeah. I mean, I get it. He was the president, but do we we care that much about bones? I mean, I guess we do. Yeah. That's a lot of money for some bones, though. Yeah. (laughs) Those jeans, though. Yeah. Uh, you know? That's why. Yes. So uh, that... DNA, how, how long has he been dead now? He's been dead for like 160 years. Yeah, it's probably pretty much... Yeah, but DNA does degrade, about... though. Yeah, you know? it does. Uh, back then, it was probably pretty useless, I don't know. Do but... we want to bring back Lincoln? Yeah. <laughs> vampire, Do we? Vampire Slayer? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. He can show us the ways. Yeah. So, that October, a Secret Service agent in Indianapolis was tipped off that there was a plot to steal Lincoln's body. So, he informed the Chicago Bureau Chief, Patrick D. Tyrell. Tyrell then recruited Louis C. Sweagles, a professional, a professional informer, to infiltrate the gang on behalf of the Secret Service. Swiegel started hanging out at Mullen's bar, drinking and talking about all of the criminals that he had hung out with in the past. The gang took notice and invited him to be part of the plan, and even started having meetings in the room that Swiegel's was staying in. <laughs> so like, hey, this cool, ta- this cool guy talks about all the criminals he hangs out in. Yeah. He's probably a cool dude. He's trustworthy. <laughs> yeah. After the meetings, Swiegel's would go, t- would go to Tyrell and tell him what they talked about. 
On November 6th, Sweagles informed Tyrell that the plan was to steal the body the next night, which was election day. So they figured while everybody was busy voting and, you know, seeing who won, Mm -hmm. they would go steal Lincoln's body. Tyrell informed his boss in Washington and then visited Robert Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's son, to tell him about the plot. Everyone agreed that Tyrell needed help foiling the body snatchers. Hmm. I'm pretty sure just a moment ago you said his bones were like 160 years old. Oh, no, no, no. This is like, this is what? Uh, no, like currently his bones are 160 years old. Like today his bones are 160 years old. This was, his bones are only like 10 years old at this time. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> How long do you think Lincoln's been dead? <laughs> oh, no. Okay. It's only been like 10 years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's why I asked you to make that timeline. Oh. Oh, that was what I was going to talk about. Oh. In our intro. When... Oh, yeah. Hey, everybody. Go check out the website. AmericaTheBazaar.com. We added this cool timeline on the website where you can see where each story or each episode took place, yeah, like if... in relation to each other. Yeah. So if you're chronologically challenged... Like myself. <laughs> and then you'll realize that Lincoln isn't older than, as old as I thought he was. <laughs> it has, I mean, it's been a long time, but it hasn't been that long. Yeah. Yeah. Time is a relative thing. Yeah. So anyways, in this story, his son is still alive. <laughs> so they go, they're like, hey, there's these people planning on stealing your dad's bones. Or, you know, I mean, it's only been 10 years. He's got a pretty nice coffin. It's pretty tightly sealed. He's probably bones and some mushy stuff still, maybe yeah, even, yeah, you yeah. know? I, oh, yeah. Some juices. Yeah. He's still probably kind of juicy. Kind of juicy. Yeah. Like a fruit gutter. Yeah. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> so anyways, so they're like, okay, you need some help to mm-hmm. foil these people. So, they hired out two operatives from the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, John C. McGinn and George Hay. Tyrell also recruited Elmer Washburn, the ex-chief of the Secret Service, John McDonald, a detective from the Illinois Humane Society, and John English, Washburn's private secretary. At 9 o'clock that night, Hughes, Mullen, and Sweagles, and a guy named Billy Brown that Sweagles had said he recruited as a getaway driver, all boarded a train headed for Springfield. Mullen had brought a bag that he packed with a can of blasting powder, a fuse, steel punch drills, a steel saw, and a file, figuring that should be enough tools to break into the tomb. Tyrell and the Pinkerton detectives also boarded the train, but in a different passenger car, and the plan was for Washburn, English, and McDonald to meet Tyrell and the Pinkertons in Springfield the next morning. The train got into Springfield at 6 a.m. on election day, and both the plotters and the detectives checked into separate hotels to get some sleep. (laughs) So that afternoon, Sweagles, Hughes, and Mullen went to the tomb to work out last-minute details for the heist. Hughes told the others that after they made it into the tomb, he could probably just kick open the sarcophagus to get to Lincoln's bones. He's like, I'm strong enough, I'll just kick it open. But Mullen was like, no. I don't think you can. So he decided that an axe would probably work better. So then he left the tomb and went to go steal an axe because they didn't have one yet. At 4.45 p.m., Sweagle snuck away to go let Tyrell know all of the details of the heist and then met back up with the plotters at 6 p.m. 
Around 6.40 p.m., the detectives arrived at the tomb, and the tomb custodian led them into the tomb. The tomb was completely dark, so the detectives all held harems until they got to the spot where they would hide and wait for the robbers. So, it's kind of confusing. The tomb is huge, mm-hmm. by the way. It's, like, it's a building. Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to quote an article by Peggy Robertson that was printed in American Her- Heritage, in American Heritage, to describe Lincoln's tomb so that everybody has a better idea of what it, what it actually looks like. Yeah, so should I close my eyes for this? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Built atop a ridge amid a 12-acre park, liberally studded with towering oaks, the tomb is, se- is essentially a massive, rectangular, one-story granite base supporting four cylindrical piers and a 117-foot granite obelisk. The roof of the base serves as a railed terrace 16 feet above ground level, which is reached by a stairway at each of its four corners. Inside the base, right-angled corridors running between unexpected corners and alcoves formed by the interior supporting walls form a puzzling maze, save for two large rooms. The burial chamber, where Lincoln's body was, is a semicircular room at the north end of the monument. The president's body rested within a massive marble sarcophagus in the center of the room. Memorial Hall, an oval rotunda filled with statuary and mementos, curves out from the south end of the monument's base. So basically, there's two big rooms that are yeah. part of the tomb. One where Lincoln's body's in, mm-hmm. and then the other is called Memorial Hall, where there's statues and mementos from his presidency and life. Wow. It's huge. Yeah. Definitely look at a picture. It's really cool again. Yeah. But, so... Tyrell stations John English at the wall between the maze and the burial chamber. English's job was supposed to notify Tyrell when he heard the robbers in the burial chamber. Tyrell and the rest of the detectives then went and hid in Memorial Hall, where they took off their shoes and sat down to wait. At about 9 o'clock, Sweagles, Hughes, and Mullen arrived to the tomb and almost immediately began to cut through the padlock on the door to the burial chamber. They started with the saw, but Mullen broke it almost immediately, so he had to switch over to the file that he brought, which took a lot longer. <laughs> John English heard them working on the lock, so he went to go tell, tell Tyrell that he heard them trying to saw the lock and cursing. He could like hear them cursing out because they broke the saw and they're <laughs> using a file. Tyrell told the detectives to wait. He wanted to arrest them when they broke into the sarcophagus, so that there wasn't any doubt. What they, what they were, were trying to do. Yeah. The robbers finally got the lock off and made their way into the burial chamber. Sweagles held a, held a lantern while Hughes and Mullen went to work on opening the sarcophagus. They were able to lift the marble cover off and they carried it over to the back wall where they put it down. But when they tried to open the inner lid, they couldn't get it to open. Mullen grabbed a sledgehammer to bust the lid open, but Sweagel stopped him, telling him that the loud noises could alert the custodian. After looking closer, they saw that the lid was held down by copper dowels, so they started working on getting those removed. Finally, they got the inner lid off just enough to be able to slide Lincoln's cedar-covered lead coffin partway out. So there's a lot of layers. Oh my goodness. Mullen and Hughes... wanted all those juices staying There's so many juices. gross (laughs) (laughs) mullen hughes told swiegel to go let his friend billy know to go bring up the getaway wagon that was supposed to be waiting at the foot of the hill 
By the way, Billy wasn't there with the getaway wagon. Oh, really? Yeah. Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> so as Swiegel left, Mullen told him, when you get back, give the whistle. Otherwise, you are liable to get hurt. We might fire at you thinking it was somebody else. We are not going to let anyone come monkeying around here. So Swiegel's leaves. But of course, there is no wagon. Like I said, he runs down the hill until he was sure that Mullen and Hughes wouldn't be able to see him. Then he ran up the hill again, around to the entrance of the Memorial Hall, part of the tomb. Spiegel said the password and told Tyrell that he needed to arrest Hughes and Mullen now or never. So Tyrell and the detectives run around to the other side of the tomb, still not wearing their shoes. (laughs) While running, Detective McGinn's gun goes off. Afraid that the gunshot had alerted the body snatchers, Tyrell bursts into the burial chamber and told the robbers to surrender, but there's no answer. Tyrell then lit a match and he saw the broken open sarcophagus, but no robbers. Tyrell then runs back to Memorial Hall and tells the custodian to bring lanterns. He finally puts on his shoes and runs to the southwest stairs of the terrace. From there, he sees the outline of two men on the northwest corner of the terrace, about 70 feet away, so he starts shooting at them. The men start shooting back, so Tyrell runs to the southeast corner to hide. Tyrell then shouts to Washburn, Chief, we have the devils up here. And that's when one of the men that Tyrell was shooting at said, Tyrell, is that you? Tyrell, for God's sake, answer, is that you shooting at us? (laughs) Tyrell had been shooting at his Pinkerton detectives. (laughs) (laughs) After Sweagles had left the burial chamber to go get the imaginary escape wagon, Hughes and Mullen had left the chamber to go wait under an oak tree that was about a hundred feet away. When the detectives had come around the corner to arrest them, Hughes and Mullen started walking towards them, thinking that the detectives were Sweagle and Billy Brown. When they got about thirty feet away from the detectives, though, they realized who they were, and they turned around and took off. By the time that McGinn's gun had accidentally gone off, Hughes and Mullen were already outside of the cemetery and almost to the street railway. Hmm. Tyrell was extremely disappointed that Hughes and Mullen had gotten away, saying, It was one of the most unfortunate nights I have ever experienced, yet God protected us in doing right. The tomb custodian figured that it probably was for the best that Tyrell missed the robbers, though, saying, If Tyrell had found them in the burial chamber, entering the door as he did, they could and would have seen and shot him before he could have learned which one of the dark corners they were in. (laughs) Which is probably true. (laughs) Mullen and Hughes ran through farmland surrounding Springfield that night while the detectives all walked back into Springfield from the cemetery, except for Washburn, who had sprained his ankle while running around the tomb and had to ride back into town in a borrowed wagon. So these detectives are just a hot mess. They were shooting at each other. One guy sprained his ankle while running. (laughs) I I just imagine, like, there was probably, like, no... A limb. Like, it was probably so dark. Oh, yeah. Or overcast. I guess it's probably, it's fall time. It's election. It's election day. Yeah. So, by dawn, Hughes and... Have you ever, have you ever, sorry. Hi, you're fine. (laughs) You ever been outside in the dark? Like, when it's dark, you can't have lights, and it's the forest. Yeah. And it's really dark. Yeah. And you can't see. (laughs) Yes. Is that what you're imagining? Yeah, it's really dark. (laughs) I just imagine it being really dark. 
It's just, well, that's the thing is that it's nighttime and then they're in this like scary, super dark tomb with yeah. obviously no windows. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like if there was a little bit of moonlight, like it would have been like bouncing off the marble. Yeah. You know? Well, but that's the thing is that you have to like walk through this maze to get to the tomb. Yeah. So by the time. But it's all marble. Yeah, but by the time you're in the tomb, there's no moonlight getting in. No. So, Tyrell, Hay, and McDonald all caught a train that night that was headed to Chicago, while Washburn and McGinn stayed so they could look for clues the next morning. By dawn, Hughes and Mullen had made it to a farm about seven miles northeast of Springfield. They asked the farmer there if he had seen any strange men around lately. He said that he hadn't, so they bought breakfast from him and then made their way to Hughes' father's farm near Loda, Illinois. Hughes decided to stay there for a while, so Mullen went back to his bar in Chicago alone. Sweagles visited Mullen's bar, telling Mullen all about how he barely escaped the detectives, and Mullen believed him. Sweagles continued to frequent the bar, hoping that Hughes would show up eventually. On November 17th, Hughes walked into the bar, and Sweagles informed Tyrell. Tyrell, McGinn, Washburn, and an officer of the Chicago police went to the bar and arrested Hughes and Mullen and took them to Chicago's Central Police Station. Oh, man. So they finally got him. (laughs) (laughs) This time time uneventfully. How many years later? This is like... Months? This is like almost two weeks later so like nothing they were not (laughs) they literally went on i don't know what it is about and then they went back to their bar in their house i don't know what it is about criminals and their fascination with like returning to the scene of the crime yeah well i guess they were like okay well we didn't do it and they didn't think that swiggles was against them so like i guess we'll just go back to our regular jobs yeah guess i better go run my bar right might be obvious if I'm not there to run the yeah. the tavern. Yeah. So, at this time, there were no Illinois laws that made grave robbing illegal. So, Hughes and Mullen were charged with unlawfully and feloniously attempting to steal, take, and carry away certain personal goods and property, including one casket, the personal goods and property of the National Lincoln Monument Association, against the peace and dignity of the people and state of Illinois. So yeah, so there's no laws against taking bodies. So they charged them with stealing the casket. <laughs> huh. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. When did grave grave robbing become illegal? So I don't remember the year, but it was actually body snatching was really popular at this time. Yeah. Medical students would actually steal bodies all the time. So that they could practice on them as cadavers. Huh. So, yeah. Bodies were being snatched all the time. <laughs> I don't know why they didn't have body snatching laws earlier. <laughs> yeah, especially for people. So, Hughes and Mullen pled not guilty, claiming that they were framed by the Secret Service. During the trial, the prosecution read out loud two letters that Mullen had tried to get smuggled out of his cell that basically detailed what he wanted two of his witnesses to say during their testimony. One letter that he had written to Thomas J. Sharp said, I will send you a statement what I want Mr. Kurtz to say. I want to prove by him that we missed the train and stayed at his house that night. Have him give me the location of his house, description of the house, and how many in his family. So, that's, yeah. That's like a smoking gun. Yeah. 
And then the other letter that he wrote to William A. Birdsall said, If you can't prove you took us towards Chestnut, get things fixed solid so you can prove that we stayed with you all night. I think you can do it if you only use your head a little. Hughes has long, thin whiskers of a sandy color, is not very fleshy, about 5 foot 8 inches. Mullins is about 5 feet 7 inches, long mustache, and is rather fleshy. We will secure the money for you. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, by the way, we look like this. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> the trial only lasted for two days, and on May 31st, 1877, Hughes and Mullins were found guilty. Each sentenced to one year of solitary confinement and hard labor at the Illinois State Penitentiary. After serving their sentences, Hughes disappeared, and we have no idea what happened to him after that. Mullins was arrested again, though. In 1888, he was found guilty of conspiracy in a land fraud case and was sent to the New Mexico State Penitentiary for three years. Big Jim got away with being the mastermind behind the Lincoln body kidnapping, but in 1880, he was arrested in St. Louis for being in possession of a counterfeit $10 bill. He was sentenced to one year at the Illinois State Penitentiary, where Ben Boyd was still serving his sentence. So now they're both in Illinois State Penitentiary. Nice. Back at Lincoln's tomb, the custodian was worried that if these amateurs could get so close to stealing Lincoln's body, a professional would have no problem. (laughs) Right. So he decided to hide Lincoln's body where no one could find it. The custodian and five of his friends stole Lincoln's body and buried it in a shallow, unmarked grave in the tomb's basement. So, I mean, I guess that's kind of hiding it. They're like, we're going to hide it where no one can find it. In the basement. Of the grave. (laughs) Of his tomb. tomb. Yeah. So all of the men swore to never reveal the actual location of Lincoln's body, and they never did. In 1895, the tomb needed serious repairs done. So all of the bodies in the tomb, there are five of them by this time, Abraham Lincoln, Mary Todd Lincoln, and three of their sons, were moved to a different vault while the repairs were being done. After the tomb was fixed up, Robert Todd Lincoln, Lincoln's sole surviving son at this time, requested that the president's remains be placed inside a steel cage, lowered into a 10-foot deep vault, and then buried by concrete. And as far as we know, his body remains there today. That's a lot of concrete. That's a lot. It's too much work to get bones now. Yeah. Too much work. Yep. So my sources for the story are The Plot to Steal Lincoln's Body by Peggy Robertson, A Plot to Steal Lincoln's Body by Thomas J. Crawwell, and Counterfeiting in Colonial America by Kenneth, by Kenneth Scott. That was amazing. I love that one. Yeah. I liked it too. So now that we're at the end of our episode... Do you have a guess about who was attacked by the rabid rabbit, which president was? <laughs> who was it? Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Apparently, after the incident, folk singer Tom Paxton wrote a song about it called, I Don't Want a Bunny Wunny. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So, and then it said, so the swamp rabbit swam out to Carter's boat while he was fishing. Where was he at? He was in Plains, Georgia. Okay. 
And it swam out to his boat and apparently wanted to climb aboard. <laughs> Carter shooed it away by splashing water on it with an oar. <laughs> oh my gosh. I just imagine, I don't know why, but I imagine a canoe. But you say it was a boat. Uh, a rowboat. It said, yeah, well, it could have been a canoe. I mean, you have oars in a canoe. But probably a, a rowboat. But I don't know. I yeah. I envisioned a canoe for some reason. I, and so, do you think that boat has a name? I, I don't know. What would you name it? I don't know. I'm just thinking like every other form of transportation the, the president has had. Oh, has a name? Yeah. I don't know if it had a name or not. Swamp Bog One? Yeah. <laughs> I uh, It reminds me of the time that I went fishing with my grandparents on the Snake River. Uh-huh. And there was a rattlesnake that was swimming in the river and kept like hitting the side of our boat because it was trying to get in. And yeah. that was so scary. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. I didn't know rattlesnakes swim. Luckily, swam. yeah, luckily we were in a bass boat with a motor and yeah. we were able to just Put take away. off. Yeah. yeah, I thought you were going to say it was reminded you of the time that you were in Alabama canoeing in the swamps. Oh, there was, when I was in Alabama, we did a night canoe trip. Yeah. We were literally in canoes and... We did that during, I think it was... was a canoe a, trip in canoes? Yeah. Haha. I know I'm <laughs> repetitive. But uh, <laughs> it was during a supermoon, and we did it so that we could go see all of the alligators. Uh-huh. Which was cool. But did we just you had, see a lot of we, alligators? Really, we just saw their eyes. That's the thing. Like, it still wasn't that bright <laughs> enough to see their bodies. But you, we all had, like, the headlamps on. Uh-huh. And you would literally just go side to side. And you could see all these eyes. And then you could see, like, them shut and then open again. Blinking. You could see, like, a whole pile of babies. Oh, yeah. Because they're all their little eyes. The thing I remember most from that canoe trip was that I had covered myself in bug spray. But I didn't get the tops of my feet where I was only wearing flip-flops. Yeah. And the next morning I woke up and the tops of my feet were covered in bug bites. And it was the most miserable thing. Because the bug bites on the top of your feet are just so itchy and so hard to scratch right. Yeah. And that was the most miserable thing. Yeah. But canoeing through alligators really didn't scare me that much. Yeah. Surprisingly. So, do you think... The presidential rowboat was called Swamp Bug One. I think so. I hope so. <laughs> that sounds like a good name. Yeah. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com and search for America the Bazaar. We also have the link in the show notes. If you would like to see what we're up to, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have a great website, like we talked about earlier, with a timeline where you can see where each episode took place, and you can listen to all the episodes there. We also have a lot of really cool merchandise on the website, so please go check that out. Anything else you can think of before we go? Nope, I think that's everything. All right. Well, until next time, stay stay weird, America. America.